Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Revelation chapter 12, we're looking at verses 1 through 6. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1034. 1034. I've entitled today's message, The Woman and the Dragon. And as soon as we found our place, I'll offer a word of prayer, and then we will consider this text. Let's bow together now. Our Lord, we thank you for another Sunday morning to gather as a church family. Thank you so much for each one who's here. Pray your every blessing on them, their lives, and their ministries. Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation and especially for today's text. And would you use this in our lives, Lord? Give us a a good sense of the the epic battle that is taking place, even as I speak. It is beyond the realm of our five senses, but it is as real as any other conflict in the world. Help us to perceive it, and then help us to live our lives in light of that truth. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would do a work in us, work that only He can do, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you all know, most of Revelation is taken up with a future time called the Day of the Lord. And this is the coming time when God will dispense His final judgments on the world of unbelief, and then He will establish His kingdom on the earth. Yet the Day of the Lord isn't just about judgment, it's also a time for salvation. And so at key moments in this book, the Apostle John will pause the judgment narrative in order to highlight God's efforts to save and to preserve his people. John is particularly um, fond of focusing on ethnic Israel. This is God's special people from the Old Covenant era. John focuses on God's work of saving and then preserving them through the uh, tribulation period in the day of the Lord. I think John does this simply to reassure all of us that God does not forget his promises. He made a promise to these ancient people. He will fulfill every promise right to the letter. So we can be assured that he'll do the same to us. He has made us promises. God will fulfill those promises exactly as he laid them out for us. Now today's passage which again is Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. This is another one of those pauses in the judgment narrative to highlight God's work of salvation and preservation. This passage also has some unique features to it. You'll notice those immediately. For example, instead of offering us just a a straightforward presentation of God's efforts to save, this text instead is wrapped in in various images and and signs. In fact, the word sign is the one that appears here in verse 1. This is a translation of the Greek word semeon. It's a favorite of the Apostle John's. A sign is an, an object or an event which points us to a higher spiritual truth. 
And so, for example, in John's Gospel, he always refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs because Jesus' miracles were not ends in themselves. They were pointers to a spiritual truth, namely that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore ought to be the object of our faith. Well, here the Apostle John uses the word sign again. He applies this word to all of the images in the vision that he presents to us in today's text. So we're going to look at these signs. We're going to look at these images. We're going to interpret what these images are, are meant to point us to. And then we will make application to our lives. Now, as we go through, you'll find two signs, two signs, but actually three images. Let's begin looking through them together. First sign or image is in verse 1. Apostle John writes this, And a great sign appeared in heaven. Now here it is. A woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Okay, so the first sign that John presents to us is a sign of this spectacular female figure dressed with the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, what is this designed to point us to? Well, it's actually not that difficult to figure out because the imagery here is used in another place of Scripture, namely in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 and 10. There we find a man named Joseph, and he has a dream. And in Joseph's dream, he sees this same thing. And he sees the sun and the moon and the stars. And in that passage, we're given the interpretation of his dream. We're told that the sun represented Joseph's father, a man called Jacob. That the moon was his mother, a woman called Rachel. And that the stars represented Joseph's brothers, who would become the 12 patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And so... Joseph's dream was a dream about Israel. Coming back to Revelation chapter 12 now, the image here is meant to point us to the same reality. This woman, clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars, is a representative of the nation of Israel. This becomes very clear to us as we move further on down through the text. In fact, we look at verse 2 now. Here we give another description of this woman. Verse 2 says she was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Okay, so this beautiful female figure with sun, moon, and stars, but now we find she's also in great pain. She's in the travail of childbirth, something a couple of you are going to experience in just the, the next few weeks. But she's in the, the pain of childbirth. And this is a common image for Israel in the Old Testament scriptures. We find it, for example, in Isaiah chapter 26. And in Isaiah chapter 66, we also find it in Micah chapter 4 and in Jeremiah chapter 4. Very often in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was depicted as a woman in the pains of childbirth. The image speaks to the pain and suffering that this nation endured in the ages while she waited for the arrival of Christ. It speaks to all the times of persecution, 
the wars, the invasions, the, the times of exile, the times of divine chastening, all of it. Okay, so this is the first sign presented for our consideration. Uh, a sign of a woman who represents Israel. Israel, this glorious nation chosen by God, a nation that rose to one of the greatest in the history of the world. Also a nation that suffered greatly over ages and ages, particularly in that time as she awaited the arrival of Christ. See, God was going to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world through the vehicle of the nation of Israel. This is a woman who's also in great anticipation as that promise is fulfilled and Christ comes. All right, that's our first sign. Now we turn to the second sign. This one is in verse 3. John writes, And another sign appeared in heaven. Now here this one is. Behold, a great red dragon. So the first image is a woman. The second image is of a great red dragon. There can be no question about what this image represents. This one is the devil himself. It's the devil himself. We know this because of verse 9 of the chapter, if you'd allow your eyes to, to glance at that verse. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down. Now he's identified that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So the great red dragon is the devil. In the second part of verse 3, we're given some further descriptions of the devil. Says he has seven heads and ten horns on his heads. There were seven diadems, those are crowns. I believe this speaks to the devil's control over the kingdoms of men. So, ever since humanity's fall, the world has been under the curse of sin, and the devil has been the ruler of this world. He is the instigator of human sin, and he now has great sway over the world of unbelief. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God, small g, but the God of this world. And Ephesians 2.2 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. So the devil is mighty. He is vicious as a dragon. He has many heads and many crowns because he has great power over the kingdoms of sinful men. But then as we look at verse 4, we find that his power goes beyond just the human realm. Verse 4 begins, And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And friends, this speaks of what happened immediately after the devil fell. You see, the devil was once an angel of heaven. He was probably the greatest of all the angels, the most beautiful the most exalted of them all. But the scriptures tell us that the devil fell when sin was found within him. And Ezekiel chapter 28 speaks to this. Listen as God addresses the devil in this passage. He says, You, the devil, were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub, that is, an exalted angel of heaven. He says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until, until unrighteousness was found in you. You see, God didn't put it there. It arose from within himself. Unrighteousness was found in you. 
Then goes, God goes on. He says, In the abundance of your trade, you are filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I cast you out of my presence because you sinned against me. He goes on, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Now all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more. And so the devil was once an angel of heaven, but he sinned against God, and God responded by expelling the devil from his presence. He cast the devil out. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, as the devil was making his exit, he swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth with him. These are a reference to angels of heaven who were influenced by the devil and then became the demons. Apparently, one-third of the heavenly host were swept up. These are the, the devil's minions today. And of course, you know that after the devil fell, after he took the demons with him, he then came to Adam and Eve, our first parents there in the Garden of Eden, tempted them to sin and plunged the world that God had made under the curse of sin and death. And so here we have two signs, two images that John wants us to dwell upon. There's the image of the woman. She represents Israel, a glorious nation, but also a nation in travail as she awaited the arrival of Christ. And then we have this second image. This is the devil, a glorious angel who fell into sin, swept up a third of the angelic host with him, and now is the enemy of God and of everything that God represents. But then, friends, there's also a third image in this passage. It's not referred to as a sign, but the image is here nonetheless. It's, it is buried within the text. Notice verse 2. You see him buried here. It says, She, Israel, was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So there is an unborn child in this passage. And then we come to verse 5. He's described again. It says, And she gave birth to this child. It was a male child. Now she describes this male, uh, John describes this male child. It says, He's the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So you see, there is a woman in this text, there is the dragon in this text, but there's also a child in this text, a male child, one destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, who could this be? Well, we know who this child represents. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know it is Christ because the language used in verse 5 is used in other places of Scripture where Christ is explicitly in view. For example, we find this language in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is called a messianic psalm. That is, a psalm that speaks to the coming rule of Christ over all the nations. And listen to how Psalm 2 reads. It says, I, this is Christ himself speaking. It says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession and you shall break them. That is, you shall break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Notice the same language there in Psalm 2. This language will appear again in Revelation chapter 19 where Christ finally steps off of his throne and comes down to earth to inaugurate his kingdom. It says he comes down and he will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So friends, it's clear that this child This child to be born, this child destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have three images in this text. Two signs, but three images. The image of a woman representing Israel. An image of a dragon representing the devil. And the image of a child representing Christ And now let's notice the interaction between these three figures. Looking down at the second part of verse 4, it says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now some background information here. As I stated before, after the devil's fall, after he was removed from the presence of God, he came to earth, he met with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He began tempting them to follow his lead, to reject God and all he represents, to go their own way. He's tempting them to sin. They succumbed to his temptation. Adam and Eve sinned, plunging themselves in all their posterity. That's all of us under the curse of sin and death. But you know, right after Adam and Eve sinned against God, God was right there in grace promising them that he would undo all of the damage that had been caused. Genesis 3.15, God promises that one day he was going to send his son into the world. He would be the Christ. He would destroy the devil and all of his power. He would make right everything that had gone wrong. It was the promise of Christ. And as time passed, God revealed more and more details about the coming Christ, telling us finally where he would be born, what bloodline he would come through. You know, the devil knew all of this because the devil pays attention to God's speech. The devil knew that God was going to send his son the world Savior, Christ, into the world through the nation of Israel. He knew Jesus would come through that bloodline. And so after the nation of Israel was constituted and as God began working through that nation, the devil was right there hovering over that nation, waiting for the Christ to come forth through that nation. That's the picture that we have here in verse 4. The dragon is circling the woman as she is preparing to give birth. You see, the devil is just waiting for Christ to arrive. You know, looking at the history of Israel in the Old Testament scriptures, I think it's clear that the devil was doing his very best, even before Christ ever came. He was doing his very best to destroy Christ and his mission. Consider 
example, Exodus chapter 1, where the Pharaoh of Egypt issues an order that all male Jewish children should be killed. Now, surely it was the devil that inspired that. The devil trying to prevent Christ, who would be a Jewish male, coming to the world. Think of all of the attempts on the life of King David, who is the ancestor of Christ. Surely the devil inspired those murderous attempts to cut off the bloodline of Christ. Or think of Esther chapters 3 through 9, where Haman attempts to kill all of the Jews, a great genocide of the Jewish race. Surely the devil was inspiring Haman in his plans, trying to prevent Christ from coming into the world. Or then after Christ was born, in Matthew chapter 2, do you remember how Herod ordered an attack upon all of the Jewish male children in the city of Bethlehem? Herod wanted Christ dead in childhood. Surely Herod's actions were inspired by the devil. You see, time and time again as we look at our scriptures, we see the devil circling around the Israelites, looking for opportunities to prevent Christ from coming, or when he came, to cut off his life prematurely so that Christ could not do his great work. Friends, the devil tried so hard. He hates Christ. He hates everything Christ represents. Christ is the Son of God. He bears all the attributes of God. And the devil hates everything that God represents. God was sending Christ into the world to destroy the devil's work and to reverse the effects of sin's curse. Of course, the devil would not have that. And so he sought at every turn to ruin Christ. But now we look at verse 5. Look what happens here. Verse 5, but she, Israel, gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So friends, despite the devil's Herculean attempts to remove Christ from this world, he still came. And over the course of his earthly life, Christ demonstrated again and again his power over the devil and his hordes. Friends, think of how our Lord cast out demons in his earthly ministry. Those, those minions of Satan, they had no power over Christ. When, he would, when Christ would approach a demon-possessed man, that demon shrieked in terror at the Son of God, and with one word, he could cast the demon out. Think of how our Lord resisted the devil's temptations in the wilderness. You know, the Scriptures tell us that very early on in His ministry, the Lord went out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and prayer, and during that time, the devil himself appeared to Christ. The devil tempted Christ with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He was trying to get Christ to sin. Why would he do that? Well, because Christ could not be an atoning sacrifice for our sins if he himself was a sinner. The devil wanted to tempt Christ to sin in order to disqualify Christ from offering himself in substitution for us. He tried to undercut Christ's ministry there in the wilderness. But the devil was no match for Christ, and he resisted those temptations. Or think about how our Lord endured the cross. You know, the scriptures tell us that the devil finally took possession of Judas, one of the twelve disciples of Christ. And 
Through Judas, the devil betrayed Christ to the authorities. Christ was arrested. Christ was tried. Christ was convicted and then sent to the cross. But think of how Christ endured that cross. Christ died. He went to a tomb. Then on the third day rose from the grave. Because you see what the devil did not know is that Christ's death on the cross, an event sparked by the devil himself, that was the very event that God had ordained to bring that atonement to pass. It was through Christ's life and death and then resurrection that our sins would be atoned for, that Christ's righteousness would become available to us upon our faith and repentance. And so Christ, through the cross and resurrection, demonstrated his victory over sin and hell and the devil. And then you look at the end of verse 5, it says, And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So Christ came into the world, despite the devil's greatest efforts. He successfully conducted his ministry, fulfilling all righteousness, offering himself as an all-sufficient atonement for sin. And then he rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven, and the devil could do nothing about it. He was powerless over Christ. Came from heaven and then returned to heaven without being touched. By the devil. So the devil raged, but in the end, he was completely powerless to stop the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, friends, what of Israel? What of that vehicle through which God brought Christ into the world? What of all the covenant promises God made to that nation? Well, let's look at verse 6 now. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has had has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, friends, what we have here is a clear case of telescoping. It's telescoping. This is when you have, you have two events presented, and there is a long time span between them. But the author brings the two together in his narrative. See, the author doesn't need to go through all of the historical details between the two events. He just needs you to know the two events themselves. That's telescoping. That's what we find here. Look carefully at the verses. Verse 5, we have the first advent of Christ, his, his birth, his life, death, resurrection, ascension. That's 2,000 years in our past. Then verse 6 takes us into the tribulation period, right? The, the day of the Lord. Notice the reference to 1260 days. We've seen that over and over again in Revelation, referring to the tribulation period. Specifically, that is the three and a half years, the 42 months, immediately prior to Christ's return and coronation. This is the great tribulation. And so, John has taken us from Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, and now all the way ahead to the final years before Christ's coronation. Years still in our future. He's bypassed the age of the New Testament church completely. Remember, the church is in heaven by this point, fulfilling the promise of Revelation 3.10. We also saw that confirmed, Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. And what has been happening to Israel in all of this time? Well, it says the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. And now into the tribulation, she is nourished by God for 1,260 days. 
See, my friends, the devil had been lying in wait, ready to destroy Christ as soon as, she came, as soon as he came. But the devil failed. Israel brought Christ forth. God was with him. God received him back into heaven. And now for thousands of years, God has providentially preserved the Jewish people, the people through whom Christ came. For more than 2,000 years now, the Jewish people have endured tremendous, tremendous hardships, and yet they have endured as a people. They have continued right on through for thousands of years. Today, they even have their own nation in their historic lands. God has providentially preserved this ancient people, and God will continue to do so right through to the end. Even in that coming tribulation, God will keep her safe. He will lead her out into the wilderness, which here is a place of safety. He will ensure that she has a central place in Christ's coming kingdom. Romans chapter 11 even says that all Israel will be saved at the end. God is going to redeem them. He's going to constitute them as a nation that endures forever and ever. And when His Son, Jesus Christ, comes to earth, takes His throne, His throne will be in that land, among that people. It will be the very center of His kingdom. No, God has not forsaken these people. They may have forsaken Him at least for a time, but He's not forsaken them. He remembers them. He remembers the promises he made to them. He will preserve them all the way through to kingdom come. Now, friends, I think there are a number of takeaways for us from this text. Number one, I think this text should strengthen our faith as we see the supremacy of God displayed in it. Friends, many people fear the devil. Even Christian people, they fear him. They picture him as a great red dragon with horns and a tail and capable of terrible things. They fear the demons that he controls. But my friends, what does this text tell us? It tells us that we have nothing to fear because the devil, as great as he might be, he is nothing compared to God. All of God's plans and purposes are secure The Lord Jesus Christ will have His reign over this world. There is nothing they can do apart from His will. When Christ speaks, the devil flees. Friends, let this strengthen your faith. Do not fear the devil. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, the Scriptures say. This should strengthen our faith, but then secondly, it should also reassure us once again of the trustworthiness of God. We've brought this up before. You see, God constituted the nation of Israel millennia ago. They were His chosen nation in the Old Covenant. God made promises to that nation, and friends, He will keep those promises. Those promises were unconditional They weren't dependent upon Israel's response to him. This was about God's grace to them. He said, I will preserve you. I will save you. I will make you the center of my kingdom. My son will come through you. My son will reign among you. 
Revelation tells us that God will keep every one of those promises right down to the letter. And so what that means for all of us is that we can take the promises that God has given to us and we don't have to worry about whether God meant them or not. We don't have to worry about whether we should take them at face value or whether they were meant to be allegorized or spiritualized in some way. What God said isn't actually what he meant. No, no, we don't have to take that approach. We can take his words literally, straightforwardly, and we can know with confidence that he will fulfill his plans for us. I think there's a third application that we should take away from today's text. That is, if we are wise, this passage will stir us to cultivate a wartime mentality with regard to spiritual things. And I say this, friends, because there is a war going on all around us right now. We can't see it. We can't hear it. But it's real. It's the war between Christ and the devil. It's a war that's been going on for millennia and which will continue for some time to come. It's a war that often spills over into human affairs. I wonder how much of the turmoil of the world today is a, is a direct consequence of the cosmic war that is happening above us. One day this war will reach its culmination. And friends, while today's passage is focused on the war as it relates to Israel, scriptures are also clear that the devil wages war against the New Testament church because we are, after all, the body of Christ, and he hates Christ. How is the devil waging war against the church today? Well, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he seeks to counterfeit God's truth, thereby leading people astray. 1 Timothy 4 says he promotes false religions in the world. Ephesians 2 says he encourages sinful lifestyles. Acts 5 says he tempts Christians to lie. 1 Corinthians 7, he tempts them to commit sexual sin. 1 John chapter 2, he tempts us to become preoccupied with earthly concerns and not with the things that are above. 1 Timothy 3, he encourages us to be spiritually proud. 1 Peter 5, to become discouraged in our Christian walk. Revelation 2.10, he also incites persecution against us. The devil also works to infiltrate the church with false teachers. That's 2 Corinthians 11 and 2 Peter 2. Also to infiltrate the church with false disciples. That's Matthew chapter 13. So friends, make no mistake, the devil is waging war against the church using every tool at his disposal. That means we are a people at war right now. And friends, knowing these facts, let us remain alert at all times. Let us be vigilant and sober-minded. Let us live our lives with a wartime mentality. So let me conclude by asking you these simple questions. Do you have a wartime mentality? Have you steeled yourself for the adversity that will inevitably come your way? Have you made yourself knowledgeable of sound doctrine that you might recognize false teaching when it comes? Have you put on the full armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of the devil? My friends, are you anticipating victory? Because there is no question who's going to win this war. This is Christ's war to win. Will you live as if you're on the winning side today? Now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, as we come to you now, we know that we are coming before our King and our General and our Savior. And what a joy to know that if we are on your side, we are on the right side of history. 
Lord, we thank you for your supremacy over all things. We thank you for your providential preservation of your ancient people. Lord, we can't wait to see the glorious future that is in store for them as they are redeemed as a nation and given a place of prominence among the nations of the world in your kingdom. Lord, we can't wait to be there ourselves, sitting on thrones, ruling with you, seeing all of your promises to us fulfilled. Lord, in the meantime, help us to live with a wartime mentality, not a peacetime mentality. Help us, Lord, not to squander the few days that we have on this earth with amusements, but instead help us to be engaged in the work of the gospel. And help us to steal ourselves for adversity. Help us, Lord, to live as if we're on the winning side and therefore to go on the offensive in this battle for the hearts and minds of people. Help us to be bold in our proclamations of your word. And Lord, do great things through us by your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.